As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, the male doubles down on their Angela Rayner basic instinct story, sparking widespread condemnation. Is editor David Dillon's cry for free speech a red herring? The BBC launches an experiment to prove its value. Will they convince sceptics to pay the licence fee? Also on the programme, I speak to investigative journalist James Ball about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. And in the media quiz, we find out which companies are making waves in the audio industry. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In this week's news, Talk TV hits the airwaves with Piers Morgan's debut outperforming Andrew Neil's GB News launch last year by 20%. Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries has said she may intervene over NewsQuest's takeover of rival Archant. The merger would see the two largest local newspaper groups in East Anglia come under single ownership. And finally, ministers are formally starting the process of privatising Channel 4. The announcement was made as part of a slew of new media policies to keep the UK's public service broadcasters distinctively British. Now onto the show, I'm here with two media experts ready to help us through the stories shaking up the media this week. First up, media editor for The Guardian is Jim Waterson. Jim, welcome. I see that you've been keeping a close eye, as we all have, of course, on the launch of Talk TV this week. Piers Morgan joining in with uh, giving you a bit of a retweet as well. Obviously very keen to read your, your writing. What did you make of the launch? It benefits from the comparison with GB News. Given that it didn't fall off air, it looked relatively slick and everything pretty much went to plan. It's flattered by the comparison. I mean, I'm not the sort of person it's aimed at, so I'm not really going to be watching an awful lot of it. Who is aimed at, do you think? Well, I think it's aimed at this not entirely non-existent and not completely mad idea that there are people who just don't like the existing news channels because they're either too flat or they feel they are too it's a horrible term, woke. And I think it's interesting that Talk TV has gone out of its way to avoid being called a right-wing news channel and it's instead going down the whole, it's not about politics, it's about common sense and cancel culture that's the problem. And we can see that there's an audience for it because Piers has got 300,000 on his first night, 200,000 on his second, 
And by the time this comes out, we might have an idea of where it's leveling off at. But mm. it's not an enormous audience, given how much advertising they've put behind it. You can't go around anywhere in England at the moment without seeing a bus with Piers Morgan's face on the side of it. So they have put a lot of money into this. And at the moment, they're being beaten by repeats on BBC4. It's very kind of structured and it's less kind of exciting than maybe I thought it would be. And then they got a, a bit of trouble with Sharon Osbourne. I mean, her numbers, people are definitely not engaged with that. That's going to be a long old build to try and get that up to anything decent, even to GB News levels. Yeah, I think one thing that really interests me is that Piers Morgan's thing on GMB was the sort of cantankerous guy in the corner with the foil of Suzanne Reed going, oh, come on, Piers. And he would get written up everywhere. Everything he said every morning, there'd be one clip that went viral. And as the sort of news day developed, all the celebrity focus websites would write up, Piers Morgan has just said this, you won't believe it. It would be viral catnip. And with this show... I wonder whether he'll suffer from just not really having rivals wanting to help as much on the topic of the day and whether his rants are maybe a little bit too, almost too political and not about the news of the day. If Talk TV is here at the moment, it's possible that it will level off at about 200,000 for peers and quite a lot lower for the other shows. And also with us is Emeritus Professor of Journalism at City University, Liz Howell. Uh, Liz, your background's in telly. You were head of news at Border, managing editor of Sky News, head of programmes at GMTV. So what do you make of Talk TV's launch? I mean, it doesn't appeal to me personally, so I haven't watched it. They've had amazing publicity and it's a big fanfare. And it sounds like a great coup, but in the end, it, it's not really special, is it? He hasn't really said anything we wouldn't think he was going to say, so I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to see how it goes on. I think on this very podcast some time ago, I said that I thought that talk radios... TV presentation with Julia Hartley Brewer in the morning, which a friend of mine is addicted to, was looking really smart compared to, say, GB News. And I think that Rupert or somebody must have been listening to me and decided to, to do the talk, the talk radio thing as TV. And they can do it slickly and they can do it well. Um, and it will have an audience and Piers Morgan is tremendously popular in some areas. But, you know, in the end, like all of these things, it will settle down. One thing I would like to say about that is this business of ratings you really need a PhD to understand TV ratings. It's very complicated. When I was running um, UK Living, I was addicted to the ratings. I was hanging over the printer in the morning. And, I mean, I knew everything about the ratings. I could tell you when our, our viewer Maureen went to the caravan just from looking at the ratings. You know. <laughs> it's, and to say that TV is doing better than Sky News or BBC News is comparing different things. Their prime show is at 8 o'clock when there's no other news outlet doing a prime show. So you can't really say it's, it's doing better. It, it, for that particular show, on that particular day, it had more audience, but you've really got to look at the whole context of ratings. Well, something that's been in the industry news a lot this week, sadly, is sexism-related stories. Ex-Radio 1 DJ and current Capital Extra DJ Tim Westwood has been accused of sexual misconduct by multiple women of colour. On Wednesday, Westwood stepped down from his show on Capital Extra. He denies any wrongdoing, but Liz, this story stirred a lot of discussion about continuing sexism and misogyny in the media. What's your reaction? Is it still too difficult for women to come forward when they're, they're victims of inappropriate conduct? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, if you want to know how it is for women in media, have a look at the expert women's site um, that we do from City University. It's very difficult for women. 
It's difficult because we live in a society which still associates authority with men, and you can see that with, for example, the, the pandemic coverage and, to some extent, the Ukraine war coverage. I mean, we do have some absolutely wonderful female conflict reporters, but, by and large, it's a male-dominated story. And there is always this feeling in a crisis that, um, that men have got the authority and it's, it's the male voice that is heard, and that, I'm afraid, is, is just a truism. And so it's difficult for women to establish themselves as authority figures anyway. And then when they do, they're subject to a great deal more unpleasantness generally, because there is a lot of misogyny in society. And also, you know, it, it takes a long time for change to actually get through. You can do things that seem on the face of it to make a big difference, but it takes a long, long time for it to become absolutely established and sort of in the DNA. So women being upfront in positions of authority, giving their opinions, being on show in a way when they're not being there as a result of male action. It is quite difficult for a lot of people to take and it's not the way a lot of people have been brought up. So it's tough for women and that is just a truth. Jim, The Guardian broke this story alongside the BBC, but it's covering allegations over sort of 20 years. How, how has it unfolded and why has it taken so long? It's very hard to get these stories published and this takes a lot of care and it takes a lot of bravery on the individuals who are willing to come forward and speak and my colleague Lexi Toppin working with uh, people at the BBC has spent a lot of time working on this and these stories are not easy to publish legally and you need to have a bit of a backbone to do them. I remember looking at some of the allegations on a lesser level a couple of years ago and talking to Global at the time about it and they did not respond in the same way, but we did not have the same testimony at the time. That is basically it. It comes down to have the individuals making the allegations got the bravery to come forward. I think there's a lot of questions for Global on this and how they handle it because... So Global is the owner of Capital Extra, where he broadcasts at the moment. Right. And he he joined them almost a decade ago after leaving Radio 1. Global had allegations put to them in 2020, and at the time, essentially, I, I think, felt that there wasn't substantive claims to investigate. And clearly, he stayed on air. Any chat that was internal, we don't know about. But now, the day following the publication of the Joint Guardian and BBC investigation, he was off air within 24 hours. It is an industry that has unequal power structures, and there are many issues around what talent is able to do and whether managers know or are able to exert any control over that. There are a lot of questions and I don't think we've heard the end of this one. Is there a challenge for broadcasters? And I don't know the situation at Capital Extra. You know, he's there probably three or four hours a week doing his weekly show. There's been no local staff complaints for it. Obviously, there are rumours and and then articles like this uh, bring it to the fore. Does that actually put the broadcaster in quite a, a hard position to make a proactive uh, statement or challenge him before these things come to the fore? You know, is it difficult for them to be able to do that? Yes, management is hard. And as someone who reports on the media industry, all we can do is try and look into claims and then put them to the representatives of the people we're looking at. There is a long running theme now that we've seen over many years of how power works in the media and any organisation that isn't aware of that and not considering that 
is probably in a bad place. You end up with a lot of scrutiny of the BBC, which is an enormously flawed institution. Tim Davy, the Director General, has said he wants to emphasise whistleblowing and make it easier for people to come forward. But it still takes a lot where essentially favours and career progression often depend on winning the approval of either talent or senior managers to take a risk with your career of making a complaint about someone in a more senior position to you, especially if you're a very young person trying to get into the industry. It's very hard because you can have as much legislation as you like and it doesn't necessarily change attitudes. In fact, it can often cause a backlash. I mean, I know a lot of men who say, oh, it's so easy for women now. Oh, that job will have to go to a woman. No, 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 no. If you look at the facts, that just isn't the way it works. And a lot of the research we did for the Expert Women Project showed that women could become quite difficult as a result so that editors trying to get women on their show would say, look, I've talked to that woman for 20 minutes to try and persuade her to come on my show and talk about her bloody museum. And she said no. And because women quite enjoy the being asked but in the end it's really difficult to make the commitment and to do it. It, it this is all very subtle and difficult stuff so I think it's attitudinal and I don't know when the attitude will change it's good that we've got more legislation it's good that we've got more awareness sometimes that can cause a backlash sometimes that can be counterproductive but we have to rock with that and we just hope we just hope that it will change but maybe it won't Talk about that kind of power relationship. The other story that's been at the fore is uh, around the Mail on Sunday. David Dillon, who's the editor there, has refused to meet the common speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, to explain his paper's coverage of Labour deputy leader Angela Rayner. This is the sort of the basic instinct story that they ran, which is obviously condemned by everyone as being sexist and inappropriate. And there's been over five and a half thousand complaints to Ipso, the regulator. I mean, I saw their sort of refusal to meet. Is that just kind of oddly PR of them just wanting to extend this story and and play the game a little bit more? When I see in my inbox the reports from around the world on press freedom, on journalists taking risks, on facing down governments, on being persecuted for doing their jobs, and I essentially realise that the press freedom battle in the UK that has made the front pages is the right to soil yourself in public over publishing a sexist story. I mean, it really feels quite quite low rent. I think it's a very Daily Mail attitude, a slightly Millwall, everyone hates us and we don't care <laughs> that that uh, newsroom has and has always had. But I used to be a political correspondent. I worked in the lobby And although that institution has changed a bit in recent years with more women going in, it remains a very blokey, very chummy clothes shop environment. I think when people wonder how we get a lot of the political journalism that we do, understanding the way that the Westminster lobby system, which is the group of political journalists who have passes to access Parliament works, reveals an awful lot about why we get the news that we do in this country. The person who made that comment to the journalist knows that they won't be outed. The chumminess between politicians and the people who cover politicians in this country is way closer than people even realise. You just need to go around the bars of Parliament in an evening. And I've seen it. Because obviously there was some talk about um, lobby briefings being filmed, about it being... And actually Guido Fawkes has been a, a, a big push for trying to take it away from the chumminess that you referenced there. Should they sort of weaken the lobby system? Would that be better? Put it on television? Put the Prime Minister spokesman on television? I think putting lobby briefings on television would be fantastic, both for transparency of government and for transparency of journalism and showing Mm. the 
questions the approach and how you get those quotes coming out. I, I just think the accountability would have been brilliant. I think it would have been absolutely terrible for the existing world of political journalism and the government. That's why it ended up not happening, because it would have exploded both of them. You would have seen the lack of uh, diversity in the lobby and the level of questioning that went on. And you'd have also seen the floundering and uh, weak answers that are often provided by the Downing Street spokesperson. I've sat, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to tell you this, but the, the lobby briefings at the moment are in a sort of garret at the top of a tower in the uh, House of Parliament. And for several years, you know, you'd traipse up there at a certain time and the journalists would sit down and then a couple of Downing Street officials would walk in with a binder of notes. And essentially, you play whack-a-mole. You go does the Prime Minister have a comment on this? And the spokesperson will flick to a page in the binder and then read out a pre-prepared answer. And whether it's on sort of arming a, another country or or benefits policy or something controversial that happened in the football last night, they'll have a pre-prepared answer. And if you hit it, then you get a quote. And if you don't hit it, then you just get, uh, we'd like to get back to you on that. It's 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 just a, an incredibly bad way of making the news. And yet it survives because it, uh, there's a sort of mutual dependency in it. Because there's so many people competing for so little actual news, mm. it, it, it ends up feeding on, on gossip, favours, and then there's that undoubted element of the political allegiance of the outlet that's doing the reporting. Liz, do you think David Dillon should come forward? You know, what response would you like to see from the Mail and, and Parliament, I guess? I think this is really interesting, and I'm going to actually say it for Lindsay Hoyle, who's getting an awful lot of, of stick for asking um, David Dillon to come and see him. If you actually look at the role of the Speaker, particularly in relation to the media, it's very interesting because there's no job description for Speaker. It's a very nuanced role. But basically the role of the Speaker is to make sure that the House of Commons is treated with respect and presents itself respectably. That's the job. And the point about the, the Mail on Sunday article, which is a horrible article actually, is that it really does make the House of Commons look ugh tawdry and disgusting. So I can see that Hoyle would think, what can I do about that? Where I think he went wrong, if I might be so bold as to say so, is to ask David Dillon to come and see him, because he's got a perfectly good head of the lobby in Jason Grove, who is in fact mm. a Daily Mail political reporter, and that would perhaps mm. be the right conduit. There's also Elizabeth Piper, who is the head of the press gallery. But Hoyle is in a difficult position because Caroline Noakes, who's the chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, who is an extremely formidable character, went to Hoyle and said that Glenn Owen's press pass should be revoked. So Hoyle has got to do something. I'm not sure if he's the person that can give out press passes and so on, but he's certainly the person who's responsible for the image of, of the House of Commons. And so he did what he felt was the right thing to do, which was to have a meeting. He wasn't gagging anyone at that point. He was going to have a meeting about the way that this particular article appeared and, and the motives behind it and perhaps try to persuade them that it wasn't the best way to treat the House of Commons, blah, blah. So I don't think that it's the sort of terrible infringement of the free press that the Mail have presented it as. You can't help laughing at the Mail thinking, yes, you know, we've got this marvellous opportunity. We're going to say, oh, this is terrible. We're being gagged. Rubbish, really. But, yeah, I think Hoyle had a point. It was a horrible article. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're part of the Expert Women Project, which uh, surveys a number of women who are featured in the news. How are things looking in terms of gender representation? We did, we did a lot of work on this, and I think we made a huge difference, and a lot more mm. women 
were interviewed as a result. And we know that we made the difference because editors actually said so. And it was really quite funny. Editors would say, oh, your, your figures are coming out. We're all terrified. And I used to think, my goodness, you know, Channel 4 editor's quaking in his shoes because of our figures. It, it, it was good. But it, it did make a, a big difference. The last one we did was during the pandemic. It wasn't as bad as it used to be, but it wasn't as good as it should have been. For the first time, we actually tried to grade the experts and you found that the big beast experts were men and the care home managers and the sort of more minor experts, still people talking with expertise, but the more minor experts were women. You know, it's going to be a long, long haul and we can't forget that this campaign, as it were, has to go on. The reality of it is that, that women are still not given the same platform as men, not given the same chances, not given the same respect. And um, the Angela Rayner story really does point that up. So, Liz, you've got to make a dash. So how can people keep up with uh, what you've been doing? The Expert Women Project website, if you want to know what it's really like for women getting involved in media, the members of the public being interviewed and so on, that's got everything you need to know. And it really does prove how difficult it is for women. Thanks, Liz, for joining us. And on to a deep dive this week. You might have heard the news that Twitter has a new owner, or it will in six months. Twitter employees, journalists and users are all asking what exactly Elon Musk's buyout will mean for the social media platform. I spoke to journalist James Ball to unpack how Twitter might change and why the deal is stirring a discussion about free speech. I, I think there's anxiety you know, Twitter is far smaller than even networks we don't really talk about anymore. You know, Snapchat is much bigger than Twitter. TikTok's about four times its size. But Twitter is the news social network. It is the most current. It is the most informative. And even if you're not sort of someone who writes up Twitter beef or does online culture... It is a genuinely useful news gathering thing. You know, I think a lot of us have it up instead of having news wires. Mm. You know, there's the anxiety of losing what's become for a lot of reporters a sort of useful default daily tool now for more than a decade. There's sort of that sense of, oh, is this just going to turn into sort of, you know, 4chan on a larger scale? And people sort of don't want that to happen. I do think my favourite bit, though, is millionaires and billionaires have owned media since forever. Social media sites used to be how you got your billions. They've now joined old media in being what you buy with them once you've got them. You're talking there about kind of other social media, other platforms, and there are lots of big ones. There's one that wants to be big, which is uh, Truth Social, potentially Donald Trump's Truth Social. I mean, all of the right-wing social network pop-ups and Getter and, and things like that, partly haven't done that well because there's kind of no one to dump on for the kind of the right-wing folk who've been sentenced there. That's one of the the things that I guess Twitter has is it does have everybody on it, which makes it more interesting. Yeah, you, you need people to disagree with. What we want when we go on Twitter, if we're honest, is sometimes to go, who's the main character today? What's funny out there? You want interaction with strangers. And as you say... If you like being edgy and being trollish and sort of winding people up, it's no fun at all if there's no one to wind up. Um, You know, just everyone agreeing with you really quickly gets dull. And so one of the things that's quite interesting about Truth Social is Trump's not posted to it Mm. since it launched, Mm. which when you're supposed to be the big draw is a bit of a problem. You know, he clearly 
it's not enough fun for him because it's not a big enough sort of stage. There's a, a big sense that Twitter might allow Trump and some of the alt-right figures back. Why would you sort of want to invest in or put a lot of money in a right-wing social network until you see how this all shakes out? But people are probably thinking, well, Musk can just ignore all of the regulators and all of the law. And he can't because Twitter will have banks lending to it and it's going to struggle to service its debt each year. You know, it's going to need its revenue. And so if it starts getting hundreds of millions in fines a year as well, that needs to be found and that would need to be tackled. You know, there's there's only so far Musk can push it. And I think what he'll do is focus on symbolic stuff to sort of, you know, throw a bit of red meat to his followers. I don't think the practice of the site will change that much. I mean, also here in Europe, we've got kind of EU Digital Services Act stuff happening. Um, there's quite a lot of regulation existing and probably arriving soon and that's going to make it difficult i mean sometimes you hear him speak and it's like if you wanted super free speech just buy 4chan it'd be much cheaper than spending 44 billion on 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 twitter i actually wrote exactly that in a new statesman earlier this week um you know it does seem to be that that's what he wants but that actually only appeals to two hundred thousand people a day you know it turns out extreme free speech isn't all that popular because it's not a very nice place to be. But the new UK regulations that Nadine Dorries is bringing mm. through with the online safety bill introduces a duty of care and also means that Twitter would be liable for stopping people seeing harmful but legal speech. I mean, it's the antithesis of the First Amendment. It's the mm. most snowflakey bill you could possibly imagine and yet it's being passed by a culture war government. I think once it comes to the internet, it turns off some ministers' brains and they stop seeing any inconsistencies in their ideology. But can you imagine Elon Musk being told that he has a duty of care and he has to define harmful speech, but then have Ofcom agree it and then keep it off there? You know, he'll buy Twitter just in time for that to be his problem. I would love to see him pop up at a DCMS select committee uh, amongst all the MPs explaining his rules and how he enforces them. That would definitely be box office. Oh, that would be spicy. Well, we'll see. So lastly, do you think Elon Musk is going to make it through these six months and have his pause on Twitter at the end of the year? So I, I like this little magic phase where ostensibly... Twitter's share price should be exactly what Musk is paying for it. This is a signed, mm. done deal, ostensibly, at fifty four twenty a share. At the moment, Twitter's trading at about forty nine seventy eight, which I think means people think there's a pretty significant level of doubt. Mm. I think people reckon it's probably likelier than not, but nowhere near a hundred percent. So. I'll go with the market and say I reckon it's about a 70% chance it happens. Okay, that's a good guess. Cowards, uh, cowards guess 70%, <laughs> I must admit. I can say that I roughly called it either way, so I will admit to cheating now. 
That was James Ball. You can hear more of our chat and we went into lots of detail on lots of different Twitter related things. Uh, If you are a subscriber to our Patreon, if you're not, it's really easy to do. Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod, patreon.com slash mediapod. You get the deep dives every week and all of the archives. If you sign up now, uh, you'll have loads of listening for the week. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back with part two of the media podcast. Uh, Liz has disappeared, but don't worry, Jim's here to talk more stories. And in other news about things people are interested in or not interested in, the BBC have done an experiment depriving 80 homes of all BBC shows for nine days. They found that sceptical viewers were more willing to pay the charge as a result of the experience. 70% of those who initially said they'd rather do without the BBC changed their minds. Jim, good thing for the BBC to do to try and show uh, consumers what they'll be missing if the BBC's not there? The, the real thing with the BBC licence fee is that everyone thinks it's a television licence fee and as television viewing declines, it's very, very hard to convince people that they should pay it. Mm. I don't watch any live television other than the odd bit of news channel and sometimes a bit of sport. And although I know it pays for the BBC website, I know it pays for uh, me to listen to Radio York commentaries of York City, which God knows no commercial provider would bother with. I, I still sort of slightly feel that well, it's a tele license. And that's what shows up in this research is that people feel that, well, I don't really see much on BBC One these days. Sure, I watch iPlayer, but it's different. I, I almost think that the moving away from the license fee might be quite a good thing for the BBC and they should embrace it and talk about the other options. Because the, the outdated idea that it's just about the TV, you can tweet all the infographics you want about you get this for £13 a month, but people just don't feel like that. They feel, well, I'm paying all this for TV 
And then the rest of the stuff is provided from the ether mysteriously. I don't really know, but I don't really think about it. It's online. It's free. It feels to me that it's not a crazy sort of anti-BBC position to take to say that the licence fee is clearly an outdated way of doing it because most of the rest of the world is thinking the same. Well, one of the, one of the suggestions I heard, which actually is quite a good one, though politically difficult, is actually putting it uh, on council tax. Because council tax is partly driven by you know, size of your house, and therefore you would pay a different amount based on uh, notionally how rich you are. But obviously, the government would hate to probably connect something that way. You wrote about the BBC DG uh, talking this week. Um, there are more cuts coming to the BBC. Did he signify where they're coming from? It sounds to me as though Tim Davy is planning to do a load of cuts, but also trying to avoid people like me writing headlines about closing channels. And the easy way to do that is to not close the channel, but just sort of quietly remove lots of the content. So, you know, rather than have the disastrous battle to close Six Music, which he oversaw and failed with, which had the unintended effect of doubling its listenership 10 years ago, when this is for people who don't remember, when Davey ran radio in about 2010, uh, the order came down, we need to make cuts, close Six Music. Every single graphic designer in Brighton got together and started a petition (laughs) and successfully saved the station. Its audience figures doubled and now it's sort of a resounding success that they couldn't dare to cut. He knows how difficult it is to take things away. So weirdly, it sounds like the sort of subtle thing to do is to sort of kill by stealth and then try and reallocate what remains elsewhere. I mean, we're back to sort of salami slicing again, aren't we? I mean, that, we've done all our salami slicing. There's no, there's no more salami left to slice. We've got to actually chop away whole sausages. But that's difficult to do, isn't it, when you're really faced with it? I think to horribly extend your metaphor, we, we <laughs> might be getting rid of the sausage, but leaving the sausage skin dangling uh, to convince people that that hasn't happened. You might still have the thing that is broadcasting on uh, linear TV or radio, but it just might not have an awful lot on it. And it's interesting that thing you said about funding the BBC through uh, council tax, because, of course, fans of radio history will know that the early BBC stations were often collaborations with local councils as yes. a sort of public good. Yeah. Where I think it was Teesside or uh, it was probably Cleveland at the time worked on the early Radio Tees up there. Mm. And that there was a lot of collaboration as they were sort of public good to bring information to people. Yes. And therefore, it's not completely crazy to go back down that route. Okay, I think we've just got enough time uh, for the media quiz. Just you and me this week, Jim. So I'm going to fire some questions at you. Uh, You've got to try and uh, win this uh, on your own. It'd be disappointing if you lost the quiz when you're the only player. Today, we're going to be playing Making Waves. I'm going to give you three audio stories, and you've got to tell me whether they're true or false. True or false. Really easy. True or false. That's it. So question number one. After the Joe Rogan scandal, Spotify's latest subscriber numbers have dropped. True or false? I think it's false, and I really should know this. It is false. Despite delete Spotify hashtag trending in January, in the last quarter, its monthly average user base grew to 412 million people. That's a 19% increase. And premium subscribers uh, are up uh, by 15% to 182 million. I'm just going to mention one senior media executive who told me proudly about how they'd boycotted Spotify after that. And then uh, a week ago sent me a link on Spotify. So I I have a few (laughs) data points to pack that up. Also, I think uh, Joe Rogan was on something and he said that uh, he'd added something like 2 million subscribers because of all the Ferrari. Just loads of people then learnt about him and liked the idea of, of tuning in and they did. No such thing as bad publicity. Absolutely. So question number two, Acast is closing. True or false? 
no, because that would feel like a, another big thing that I should definitely know about. <laughs> Correct, it is false. What they are closing, though, is their app. They've had uh, their own podcast listening app for eight years, but they've decided to turn that off and concentrate on the other things they do, which is mainly selling ads. That's the right thing to do, isn't it? Running your own app, it's a big old bit of hassle and there's better ones out there. Absolutely. And, and this sort of eternal battle that places like the BBC have to try and make people use their own apps so they can harvest their own data and keep things within their own walled garden. It just drives consumers nuts because they just want to get it through the Apple podcast app or whatever they use. Or, or personally, I, I use up Spotify for all of my podcast listening, mm. which I'm sort of Daniel X dream of the one person <laughs> who actually does that. You've moved across. And finally, question number three, uh, BBC Radio 4 Extra is launching a show that will be scripted by its listeners. Is that true or false? That sounds like the sort of cost-cutting measure that Tim <laughs> Davey wants. So, yes, that's true. Uh, it's partly true. Uh, they're going to be partly scripted by listeners. Uh, this is DMs Are Open, a new six-part comedy series that will feature a mix of sketches, one-liners and voice notes uh, written by listeners. Uh, would you tune into that? Well, as far as I can tell, most comedy panel shows are basically lifted from Twitter anyway, given when you watch <laughs> at the end of the week, they seem to have all the jokes that people I, I follow were making on the Monday and Tuesday anyway. So maybe just cut out the middleman and lift the content directly. It sounds much more efficient than paying a comedian to read it out i think what is quite good is there's been a, a few of these over the years and this is kind of the latest one i know that john holmes is the skewer takes suggestions and they pay for like suggested gags i think it's quite nice that there's actually some open access and you, you can get your material on um, and it's not an entire uh, walled garden i like the idea of it being one of those you know um uh you've been framed yeah. what was the send your tape in for 250 pounds yeah 250 quid from jeremy beadle yeah exactly yeah 250 quid well you'd probably be lucky to get that from the bbc for <laughs> for a comedy show so you know send your tape in and we'll give you £2.50 and a thank you from Tim Davy. yes which means Jim you are the winner of the quiz uh, three out of three uh, well done <laughs> Um, how can people keep track of your work? What's the best way? They can subscribe to the wonderful Guardian app, which has some excellent content and also the odd media story from me. And I'm on Twitter at Jim Waterson. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for staying with us till the end. And if you are enjoying the show, why not consider becoming a patron of it? Just sign up at patreon.com slash mediapod. It means you'll help us continue to cover the media news each week and you'll get access to a growing archive of bonus content. Other options, uh, you can take out a riverside.fm trial great service for uh, recording podcasts and uh, video interviews uh, just use the code mediapod when you're at riverside.fm and of course if you haven't already subscribed or followed the show in your podcast app of choice be the apple Podcasts, spotify google podcasts then do do that and then you'll get the uh, latest episode every friday straight away uh, my name is matt deegan the producer was phoebe adler ryan with support from matt hill it was a rethink audio production and we'll see you next week Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 